0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Welcome back to Mexico Moving Forward. Uh, This is session four, Mexico Looking Forward Pacific Partnerships. Just to give you an idea about this session, closing out this day-long symposium which will look beyond North America to nations in Asia and across the Pacific. The session will examine how the economic ties between Mexico and Asia can be strengthened, and Professor Gordon Hansen will serve as the moderator. I'll tell you just a little bit about our panelists and moderator, and then we will move into the discussion section. Gordon Hansen is a professor at UC San Diego. He holds the Pacific Economic Cooperation Chair in International Economic Relations and is the director of the Center on Emerging and Pacific Economies and co-director of the Policy Design and Evaluation Lab. Arturo Sarucan served as a career diplomat in the Mexican Foreign Service for 20 years and held numerous positions in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He worked at the Mexican embassy in the United States during NAFTA negotiations and was later appointed Mexican ambassador to the United States. Susan Shirk is a professor at UC San Diego. She's the chair of the School of International Relations and Pacific Studies 21st Century China Program. She founded the Northeast Asia Cooperation Dialogue and has authored numerous publications on Chinese education, economic policymaking, political leadership, and foreign policy. And we've added another panelist who is graciously stepping in for uh, Luis Tejas who could not join us today. Carlos Elizondo, who spoke earlier today, he's a professor at El Centro de Investigación y Docencia Económicas. Elizondo began as professor and researcher at CIDE before becoming director in 1995, In 2004, he served as ambassador and permanent representative of Mexico to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development before returning to CIDE in 2006.
2: So I'm very excited about this panel because we have a group of seasoned scholars and diplomats to help us think about where Mexico is going and where, in particular, the U.S.-Mexico relationship is going. Uh, Now, uh, with NAFTA at 20, uh, the, the U.S. and Mexico... Look at each other as, as something like an, an old married couple, right and they 're try, trying to figure out where exactly is this um, is this relationship uh, going and there 's a concern that a bit of the romance is gone uh, when the three presidents got together recently President obama didn 't even spend the night in Mexico um, uh, so it, it It gives you a sense that uh, some of the spark uh, might be missing so as as we, as we look forward, you can, you can think about uh, uh, two possible paths. One is that Mexico and the United States choose to live separate lives, um, with Mexico looking to the south, trying to engage Peru, Colombia, Chile, other partners in, in Latin America in, in stronger uh, trade ties. Uh, the United States has already sort of cast its bet in that direction with its pivot toward uh, Asia. But another possibility is that the United States and Mexico choose to to fortify their relationship. Um, uh, Business in the two countries is kind of placed a bet in that direction. You look at the North American auto industry, which is truly North American today. You look at commercial aircraft production in the region, which is truly North American. Business is seeing North America as an entity that competes in uh, the global economy. So uh, to start our discussion, um, I wonder um, uh, if uh, Ambassador Sato Khan, if you could give us a sense of how Mexico sees uh, the United States today. What is Mexico seeing? Uh, how does Mexico see the U.S. in terms of what it
3: wants from that
2: bilateral relationship?
3: Well, f- First of all, it's, um, it's a great pleasure to be back at uh, UCSD. Um, Peter Smith, who I think is no longer in the, in the room, uh, was my first boss. Mm -hmm. Um, when the Ford Foundation put together the U.S.-Mexico Bilateral Commission on the Future of the Bilateral Relationship. Remember, this was in the 80s when we were on the cusp of probably the worst period of the Mexican-U.S. bilateral relationship. We had just gone through Camarena and the murder of Camarena in Mexico, and we had just been at loggerheads with one another Um, when Mexico's most important foreign policy priority – clashed with, if not the most important foreign policy priority of the Reagan administration, certainly the most important component of his hemispheric vision, which was also Central America. So, you know, the 80s were a very bad moment in the bilateral relationship. Ford Foundation decided to put a blue-ribbon panel of U.S. and Mexican commissioners together to try and sort of rethink the bilateral relationship. And lo and behold, uh, one of the recommendations that came out of that commission was precisely... Uh, the free trade agreement between Mexico and the United States, which was later adopted by President Salinas as sort of his, 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 uh, his main uh, driver of policy towards the United States. So it's, it's great to be back in this fantastic campus. As a recovering diplomat, I'm also glad that we finally have a panel that's sort of sp- going to try and address some of the foreign policy issues that Mexico and the U.S. face as we think of the North American domain and sort of what types of linkages uh, we, we, we need to develop to not only deepen the U.S.-Mexico bilateral relationship, but the North American relationship, and the way North America and the North American footprint uh, looks like in other regions of the world. Um, I know we're on the beautiful Pacific, but I, I will try and uh, provide for a, l- a larger scope of of where I think Mexico needs to look at uh, as, as it... Uh, tries to uh, revisit its role in, in, in the world. The question uh, of what, what does Mexico want or what does Mexico seek from its relationship with the United States? Um, this isn't going to sound too kosher because I've spent the last six years of my life trying to develop and deepen and widen that relationship, but I think there's no bilateral relationship more important for Mexico than the relationship with the United States. And I think that as has been evident in some of the panel's uh, that have preceded this one. There's a growing understanding in Mexico, certainly, still not where I would like to see it in the U.S. That these two countries are uniquely important to each other's well-being, security, and prosperity. Um, if you look at the polls that have been put together by the Chicago uh, Global Affairs the Council of Global, Affair, uh, uh, Global Affairs Council of Chicago and see they. Um, increasingly, Mexicans are very sanguine about their relationship with the United States and the importance of that relationship. And I think that bodes well. Um, at the same time, I think there are some very structural, very important structural challenges that both countries need to face as we deepen and widen that relationship. Uh, there are many ways you can do this. You can use the traditional bilateral approach between Mexico and the United States, you can seek to build it via the regional trilateral approach with our Canadian partners, you can seek to develop it by linking the Pacific Alliance and Mexico's efforts to re its vision towards Latin America. And, you know, let's let's say bluntly, I, I, I'm i not my good friend, José Antonio Meade, the foreign minister, who has to be diplomatic about it. You know, the Pacific Alliance is about building an alternative architecture in South America that will provide, not only allow my tongue-in-cheek a uh, a coalition of the free trade willing in the Americas, but will maintain the U.S. strategically linked with the rest of the hemisphere, vis-à-vis the UNASUR-Mercosur-led paradigm uh, of Brazil. Um, And Mexico can also develop this footprint as it looks to Asia-Pacific, whether it's via the TPP, or whether it's via some of the increasing bilateral engagement that we're seeing particularly with China, as both countries have sort of left behind the years of great discomfort and skepticism over everything from the trade relationship to how both countries could engage on relevant multilateral global issues. So I think that at the heart of the question is what type of footprint, global footprint, does Mexico want to achieve? And again, for a recovering diplomat, um, I can now say things that I couldn't a year ago. Uh, The sad sad issue is that Mexico has been punching below its weight in the international arena for too long. And Mexico can't afford to continue punching below its weight. It has to rethink what type of role it it, it wants to play. Um, It has to face some of its demons. PKOs, for example, peacekeeping operations. There's been a lot of discussion in Mexico in the past years, as the Brazil, as the attractiveness of Brazil sort of um, uh, was leading not only coverage, media coverage of the role that both countries were playing globally, but also in terms of the attractiveness of the paradigms. And I, I would say this very bluntly, and many Mexicans wouldn't like it very much when I said it. I said. Well, you know, if you're concerned about Brazil being able to someday maybe obtain a permanent seat at the UN Security Council, there's a very powerful reason for Brazil being there and, not, and Mexico not. They have peacekeeping troops in Haiti and Mexico doesn't. And I, I know it's a, it's, it's a sort of a very um, artificial benchmark that I'm using, but it tells you about the willingness of a country to play a very different role on the, globes, on the global stage. So the relationship with the United States has to be seen not only via the prism of the bilateral relationship, and a very unique bilateral relationship, by the way. I think there there are probably two countries on the face of the earth that have such a wide and complex relationship with the United States, and that's Canada and Mexico. And there are two countries that play, besides that, a unique role in the intersection between domestic politics in the U.S. and the bilateral agenda, and those are Israel and Mexico. We play in different sandlots, but the, the 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 domestic dynamics that propel the relationship forward look very similar. So, so I think at the at the heart of the question is, how does Mexico want to play its cards on the international arena? Beyond the need to advance and solve issues that we all know are salient in the U.S.-Mexico bilateral relationship, whether it's drugs and thugs, or immigration, or border infrastructure, or trade facilitation, or the Rio-Colorado water and the Colorado River Delta issues. The, the, the agenda is, is immense. But beyond that specific bilateral agenda, how does Mexico understand its relationship with the United States in a much larger pan-hemispheric and global role? And that's where I think the TPP, which I hope we will be addressing in a bit, can play a very important uh, 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 facilitating role to develop that footprint.
2: Well, let's, uh, let's jump right to the TPP uh, because as Mexico uh, figures out how to uh, punch at its weight and not, its, not below its weight, and I, th- I think you put that very eloquently, uh, TPP gives Mexico a vehicle because the other avenues are, are shut down. The, uh, global trade talks are stalled. Um, there's there's uh, tensions in the UN um, but the TPP gives, uh, gives Mexico an opportunity to, uh, to play a role in fashioning a 21st century uh, 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 trade agreement. Um, so Susan, I wonder if you could give us some perspective on where TPP came from, what's the interest of the U.S. in, in launching this uh, initiative, and is it, is it a foil? Is this just getting back... At China, So if Mexico thinks about TPP as being a meaningful way for it to engage with, uh, with partners other than the United States, is it going to be disappointed yet again because the U.S. has ulterior motives?
0: Well, uh, the TPP is a very important part of the Obama administration's paying greater attention to Asia, what, for a shorthand, we call pivot to Asia. And uh, that... That effort was motivated by a recognition that the Asia Pacific is the most economically dynamic part of the world, and that uh, the United States was marginalizing itself in that very important region. It wasn't necessarily that China was pushing us out of Asia, um, but that we just weren't giving it enough attention. And part of this is the tyranny of distance. You know, the fact that it's really hard to get our senior officials on an airplane from Washington to go out to a meeting in Asia where they just, you know, can go to Mexico or Canada or to Europe for a short meeting and be home in time for dinner. So um, this uh, re- Commitment to be an Asia Pacific power, something that the Obama administration came in with, and it was supposed to be across the board economically, diplomatically, and militarily. And it's not all about uh, containing China or balancing China. Uh, the idea was simply to be there and to uh, reassure our friends, our allies that we were there to stay. So uh, TPP was misunderstood by many Chinese as an anti-China trade block uh, designed to compete with uh, some of the other regional trade initiatives that China has been part of. or to really be uh, economic containment of China. And that really was not what it was about. It's about creating a high quality trade agreement that will uh, uh, encourage other countries to do the things that the United States do does to Uh, you know, to protect intellectual property rights, to strengthen the legal system, environmental protections, all of these sorts of things. So, and the idea is, well, let's just set a high standard and then whoever wants to join can join. And I like that approach uh, and I think it was really quite sincere. The Chinese reaction to it was interesting because it came at two levels. At the popular level, or the kind of intellectual commentator level, there was a lot of suspicion that this was aimed at China, it was very hostile to China, and this showed that American intentions were to contain China, to keep it weak, to keep it poor. But I was struck by the fact that from the very beginning, the Chinese government never closed the door. And they didn't join in that rhetoric at all. And sometimes they do about other things. So it looked to me that the Chinese government was keeping the door open. And with the, now with the initiation of a third wave of market reforms, there is uh, quite an interest in TPP as well as the bilateral investment <coughs> treaty, uh, government pro- procurement agreement, international trade uh, regulation that will force China to do things that are hard for China to do, but that many of the uh, economists and economic officials believe that China needs to do in order to be truly competitive in the global economy and to get out, avoid the middle income trap, and really get to be a very successful economy. So they're looking to TPP, at least having discussions about TPP, as a way of creating a kind of positive gaiatsu as they say in Japan, positive foreign pressure to overcome domestic resistance to market-oriented reforms and to move in that direction. And the third, uh, the National People's Congress that just is meeting now in Beijing has reinforced this direction of getting the government out of the economy, reducing the number of administrative approvals, and to uh, shrink the government role so it's more purely regulatory. So that's the intention. It's going to be really hard to do, but I think they... believe that at least keeping the door of TPP open will help them achieve that goal domestically.
2: So it's interesting. You, uh, you mentioned this, this notion of a high-quality uh, uh, trade agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, Carlos, I, I wonder if you could give us some, some insight as, as Mexico looks at the various options it has on the table between the Pacific Alliance, TPP, uh, other possible negotiations trying to, trying to engage Europe more fully. Certainly one of its objectives has to be diversifying its exports. Uh, Mexico imp- only imports 50% of the goods it imports from the United States, but it sends 80% of its exports to the United States. So as we think about ways in which the next round of agreements that Mexico uh, negotiates might better serve Mexico's interests, be it on the export diversification side, or be it in terms of other objectives. What are some of the things we should be thinking about, and what are uh, what about the economic and political interests that are going to be trying to shape uh, uh, those agreements?
4: Well, thank you very much. I'm here in in s- institution of Luis Tejas, but I've- I'm very sad he couldn't be here, but I'll try to kick into this panel which has been so far very interesting. I think that uh, we have to bear in mind that Mexico has tried to diversify its exports since I remember, since the (laughs) 50s probably. Each new administration makes some effort in arguing that they'll do it in a different way and at the end the market dynamics are such that you end more or less with the same percentage. So there is a strategic uh, need to do it We'll have it increasingly in oil and because you won't be uh, importing as much oil as before. There we have a concrete necessity to diversify our exports because your market won't be there any longer or won't be as interesting as it's right now. So that in itself is pushing the Mexican government into trying to engage in a different way with other parts of the world. But I do think that we have to bear in mind that even though we have that rhetoric and with respect to the oil, we have this necessity, at the end, Mexican officials, I feel, are extremely nervous about this new world because 20 years ago, we were brave enough or uh, modern enough or we were capable of looking forward and making Mexico the first country with this kind of trade agreement and very quickly, Mexico became the country in the world with more free trade agreements uh, and that gave it an extremely interesting advantage vis-a-vis other countries of the region. And now we're extremely defensive because at the beginning they didn't invite us to the party of TPP. We had to try to please invite us and it was some sort of a uh, complex negotiation because at the beginning I don't think the United States was very much interested in having both Canada and Mexico there because they thought that the whole process would, became more, would become more complicated. So, we were invited and then I think the U.S. realized we had an asset which was the Alianza para el Pacífico. As you are all aware, Arturo already mentioned it's this agreement, free trade agreement with Colombia, Peru and Chile and most likely, Panama and Costa Rica will be joining soon. This is a very different agreement from Mercosur because it's extremely pragmatic, contrary to the idea of having a large uh, set of objectives where you'll be not only trading but doing a lot, many other things. In the case of Alianza para el Pacífico, it has only one objective explicitly, which is exchange of goods, services and people, uh, opening their borders, And you need need to have already a free trade agreement between all the countries involved, and that's why Panama is currently negotiating a free trade agreement with Mexico in order to to be invited to the party. But once I think Mexico realized that they could use this other leg to have a stronger footprint within the TPP, uh, they are less defensive than than at the beginning. Because they've realized that they can play like, this role of, of, of linking this part of North America, with, well, North America with this part of Latin America. And at the same time, domestically, I think this is very important in Mexico. The mere fact that Venezuela, Argentina, and in a less salient way, Brazil, are facing these very serious economic problems. The whole idea from the left in Mexico that you had an alternative economic model is not ending any, any longer there. And so that has created like a space for the government to move forward in the opening of the economy, which is something that uh, at the beginning it wasn't very clear with President Peña Nieto, but now it's very clear that they're moving forward with both alliances. But at the same time, they're extremely nervous that they haven't been invited to the table in Europe. And both countries, Canada and Mexico, try to uh, be asked to participate there. It hasn't been uh, accepted by the U.S. They're finding mechanisms for... Consultation. For consultation, and Mexico is trying to revamp its free trade agree- agreement with Europe because, having been the first, you have the problem that our free trade agreements, both U.S. and Europe, Europe and others, are old, and many new things have in, 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 have, have been added in, in other trade agreements with respect to services, with respect to mechanisms for solving disputes, etc. So I think that Mexico is trying to play like. The role it needs to play, due to the fact that, following with your with your initial metaphor, yeah, it's an old marriage, and maybe the Obama is not so romantic any longer. But this is like Mexico is like the type of wife that needs a husband, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and even if, if if Obama is flirting with someone else, well, 80% of our exports, etc., etc., are geared into the United States, and therefore we need. To profit, to see this, although it's it's risky, to use this as an opportunity to engage more with the United States. And at the same time, play the other game. But it's not that we could avoid or could really disentangle our economy with the U.S. economy and start playing another game. We have to strengthen this game and at the same time, try to open some more space to the Mexican economy, a more strategic position vis-a-vis Latin America. But the gravity, now we, have, we won an Oscar or they won an Oscar, the gravity of the United States is such <laughs> that uh, it's, it's impossible to really move away from it.
2: So um, so, so, thinking about that, that dynamic, Arturo, I wonder if you could help us think about uh, how Mexico might define an, an organizing principle for its its uh, its foreign policy. If we go back to the 1960s and 1970s. The notion of Mexico being independent in the in the foreign policy arena was 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 essential. It, it was it was non-aligned. It wasn't going to play a subservient role to the U.S. in any dimension. It was a place where where those who felt persecuted politically could go. We had the, the disarray of the 1980s as Mexico negotiated its, uh, uh, its external debt. And then the 1990s was uh, uh, c- along came NAFTA. So, as today, as Mexico thinks about uh, complexifying its, its relations, can we identify a, a, a principle that Mexico will follow in defining its relationship uh, with other countries?
3: Yeah. Um the challenge that I think Mexican foreign policy in general faces, and foreign policy elites in Mexico face, is that they're sort of caught in a time warp. And you know, I have to say that obviously, as a son and grandson of conflict refugees on both sides, who came to Mexico in the 30s because of Mexico's very generous asylum and refugee policy, I say this with a certain degree of, of uh, sort of anxiety and caution, but I I, I think think that the greatest challenge is how Mexico transits from understanding its role in the international arena in a way in which the world no longer exists. And that has been, and this is something that has challenged both PRI and PAN governments. Um, I I remember when um, I I was uh, heading the foreign policy transition team in 2006, I told then the president-elect that he had to do two things that I thought were very important. One was recommitting to bringing Mexico back to the U.N. Security Council for 2009-2010. And the argument was, "I'm good. I'm not that good. I don't know who's going to win the U.S. election, but what I do know, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure it out, is that '09 and '10 were going to be the first two years of the new foreign policy of the next U.S. administration." And that by having Mexico and the United States sit together at the Security Council, this provided a unique possibility of establishing that type of global dialogue that Mexico and the United States need to develop in a more consistent fashion. And he said, okay, the second one that I said is, we need to bring Mexico into PKOs. And he said, don't even think about it. We're not going to do it. And so there's, there's there's still, I think, a great challenge in pushing and moving Mexico forward into what I think is, has to be its role, which is, as one of the pivot nations between emerging markets and industrialized economies, playing a critical role in building a post-Westphalian, rules-based, 21st century, rules-based international system. That has to be Mexico's role, whether it's on trade, whether it's on climate change and the environment, whether it 's on the global financial, economic ar- architecture, that has to be mexico 's role, and this is where again, I think T- sort of we start with TPP, we come back to TPP. why because TPP it, it, TPP allows you to do a lot of stuff together simultaneously. NAFTA was a 1.0 free trade agreement, as Carlos has said, NAFTA, when we negotiated NAFTA back in '93, um, it was the gold standard. It was the first ambitious. Holistic, free trade agreement, not only of its kind, but between a developing and a developed and industrialized nation. And so it became the standard by which every single free trade after that was developed. The problem is that the global economy has changed dramatically since 1993. The free trade agreements that have occurred since then would be what I call 2.0 free trade agreements. TPP is a 3.0 free trade agreement. It's It's going to be the new gold standard on everything... From IPR, to environmental issues, to state-owned enterprises, this is the new standard for international trade. And so, number one, the TPP will help us modernize the NAFTA edifice without, by the way, renegotiating NAFTA. And by doing something that our lover, or our sort of, the Carlos the was using the wife and the husband, sort of something that, that the United States has not wanted to do and has been unwilling to do which is to unequivocally and wholeheartedly embrace nafta and north america as the the basis of its future competitiveness and again i know we're on the we're watching we're 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 seeing the pacific from the terrace but if there's anywhere the united states needs to pivot to it's not asia it's north america because North America is where the future competitiveness and strength of this country and its two partners will come from, and that's why TPP again is so powerful, because if if you look at if you look at our trading relationship, Mexico has a 21st century trading relationship with the United States in a 20th century framework, NAFTA, and something that we, I know all of you suffer on a daily basis, with 19th century infrastructure. TPP allows you to modernize that framework, bring it up to these new standards. It deepens what is the most important success story of NAFTA, which is joint production and integrated supply and production chains in North America, where we are no longer producing Mexican, Canadian, or U.S. exports. We're producing North American products. Out of every dollar that Mexico exports, 40 cents a U.S. content. If that's not powerful, I don't know what, isn't, what is. But it also allows the three North American countries <clears throat> to deepen that relationship and to use it to regain competitiveness in the global economy, vis-a-vis Asia-Pacific. If the United States and the European Union understand that sooner or later they will have to harmonize their agreement with Canada's soon-to-be-finalized agreement with the European Union and with Mexico's older but first agreement of North America with the European Union, then you suddenly have a very relevant free-trading system across the northern part of the globe that connects the North Atlantic Europe, North America, and the Asia-Pacific. And this is a very, com- I think, this is a very compelling story that Mexico needs to latch onto and articulate strategically. So, if um,
2: if Mexico looks out in the world and sees China potentially as a competitor for U.S. affections, uh, continue our our metaphor here. Um,
0: Don't worry about it.
2: <laughs> it's. Uh, it it's It's not clear that uh, China is as nearly as concerned about Mexico as Mexico is uh, about China so uh, but China will loom very large as Mexico figures out how to define itself in this world that's not unipolar, maybe it's bipolar, maybe it's multipolar um, but Susan, I wonder if you could give us a sense um, not just specifically on how China views Mexico, but as as China develops its international relations beyond uh, the immediate uh, arena of the Pacific and the, the local uh, geopolitical conflicts we have there, and it thinks beyond the United States, how is China likely to develop its relationships more broadly with Mexico, the rest of Latin America, with, with other parts of the emerging world?
0: Well, it's... Um it's making it up as it goes along. It really has no template um, for becoming a global economic power, much less diplomatic or strategic power. Um, and so I think it's quite tentative in the way it's going about this. Um, of course, the opening... Wedge is the economic relationship, especially with uh, resources, which is why China, you know, does pay more attention to some other countries in Latin America than Mexico. Um, and But it's not just resources. It's also markets for its manufactured goods. And um, But then there are a lot of question marks about you know, for example, will there be a military arms sales relationship that follows? You know, certainly there are plenty of um, military industrial companies in China that would love to start selling more, exporting more equipment. Will they build on these economic and diplomatic relationships to uh, to... Uh, sell military equipment. Of course, the other thing is, once they nurture the diplomatic relationship, what do they want to do with those diplomatic relationships? Um, In the past, it was all about Taiwan. In the past, it was just a competition with Taiwan diplomacy to uh, have countries support their point of view that there is just one China and Taiwan is part of China. Um, and now there's a kind of truce, which is a very positive thing, between Taiwan and China, not to compete by buying diplomatic support for them, one another. So that's, that's very good, and we hope that will be long-lasting uh, even after uh, Ma Ying-jeou leaves the presidency in Taiwan. But what, what else does it want to do? you know, there's a very primitive kind of Chinese diplomacy, which is about its core interests, you know, supporting Chinese positions on maritime territorial disputes, on Tibet and Xinjiang, you know, what it defines now uh, as its core interests, and that would be you know, uh, then you start really creating a a kind of Cold War-type situation in which the United States and its allies, not so much on Tibet and Xinjiang, where everybody recognizes them as part of China, but in the territorial disputes with uh, Japan and in the South China Sea, um, you know, the United States, Japan, Korea, our allies will stand on one side, and China will try to... uh, kind of buy diplomatic support on the other side. There has been, uh, there was a really interesting essay that Yen Shui-Tung, one of the most uh, controversial and interesting academic international relations scholars, Ken Waltz, PhD at at Berkeley, who has very um, realist views of international relations, um, he's now saying that China should use its market power to um, uh, to reward the countries that will befriend it and to punish the countries that are critical of it. And we've seen a little bit of that in Asia with um, rare earth exports um, and in the Philippines... Um, I forget what, uh, they're not buying Philippine, I don't know, I can't remember what it is, but there is this kind of um, uh, very mechanical, uh, coercive sort of use of trade to uh, get countries to stand on their side. So, you know, as I say, it's a little early to see exactly how this is all going to turn out. And I think it's good that China's taking, being quite cautious and taking um, small steps to figure out exactly what it wants to do with these diplomatic relationships. I might mention one last thing, which is that, uh, and I think this is pretty good, actually, China is building a navy that a great power, you know, that they think a great power should have. So they're really developing their navy now. And one of the reasons is, not just, it's not just about Taiwan now, it's about protecting Chinese trade all over the world. But it's also about building hospital ships and other types of um, big ships to evacuate civilians in crises, to join in relief efforts when there are natural disasters. And a lot of the expansion of their navy uh, is those kind of more positive uh, uh, motivations to show China's presence, but to do it in a constructive and positive way.
2: So the, um, for uh, as Mexico thinks of the ways in which it uh, uh, confronts China, being part of the, the North American industrial complex is an, uh, is an essential component uh, of that. Um, and uh, Arturo put on the table the, the one fact I think that, that describes that relationship as uh, succinctly as possible, which is that 40% of every dollar of Mexican exports is, is made up of, of goods imported from the United States. So, Carlos, as we think about um, uh, Mexico's further industrial development, um, and we think uh, uh, there's a challenge that that relationship presents in that Manufacturing is a dying industry in the United States. Uh, since 2001, the U.S. has lost 35% of its jobs in manufacturing. Now, it's, able, it's been able to keep output somewhat steady because it's been replacing workers with machines, uh, but manufacturing is not, is not a growing sector. So um, uh, Mexico will help the U.S. hold on, U.S. and Canada hold on to certain key sectors, autos and aircraft, as we've mentioned, being being part of that. But how does how does Mexico think about uh, an industrial development strategy, uh, be it through trade agreements, be it through other mechanisms, in a world where the U.S. is no longer that manufacturing powerhouse that it was at the time that uh, that NAFTA was negotiated?
4: Well, I don't have the illusion, but the argument that it's being repeated in Mexico is that the US is and you know much more of this than I is returning will be in a reindustrialization process as a result both of the energy revolution and the 3D and other technological revolution maybe it won't be generating the employment that it used to generate perhaps it will have a negative impact in terms of employment because of the robotization etc But the expectation is that uh, that in itself will create some momentum around certain industries that because of its weight or because of the sensitivity of its technology, because even though TPP is trying to strengthen property rights, etc., the U.S. has already learned that certain things, once you send it to China, you lose lose them (laughs) in terms of property rights, while the relationship with Mexico and Canada is creates much more certainty in terms of property rights. Uh, the expectation, I think, is that thanks to the, our own energy revolution, the fact that we will be opening gas, etc., which was discussed in the previous, in the previous table, in the previ- previous session, we should have, like, more, more, both the U.S. and Mexico and Canada as a result of it, will have, like, a, the capacity to regain certain uh, weight in certain areas that had been lost in the past. There's this example that I read the other day uh, with respect to a big petrochemical plant of Chile that was sent to, I don't know if Louisiana or Texas, just because with the price of gas in Chile, it was impossible to be competitive. So that does create, I think, some interesting arbitrage opportunities, and I think that's expectation number one. Second... I think that, uh, returning to, to your initial metaphor, there's some sort of menage trois between, between China, Mexico, and the, and the U.S. in the following sense. Very simply, if you look at our surplus with the United States, it's more or less the same as our deficit with China. It means we, we import a lot of, 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 of the things that we then reassemble or manufacture and then send to the United States. And precisely because of the figure that uh, Arturo said, uh, told us that 40% of our imports, of our exports, have U.S. components, and I don't know the precise figure, but of each extra dollar that Mexicans have, our propensity to import from the United States is much larger than any other country in the world. The expectation would be that as Price uh, as, as relative price between China and Mexico both of labor, of energy, etc. continue changing the capacity to regain some of the, of the space we lost in the last 15 years could enable Mexico to relaunch certain industrial sectors where we lost vis-a-vis China but of course I think the, 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 the more general question any society should be making is Will uh, the industrial sector end being in terms of employment as the agricultural sector is right now in most developed countries? I mean, there is a big, big challenge as a result of robotization. And I think that that's where these new trade agreements where you can uh, uh, promote not only the movement of goods, but certain kind of services, movement of people. I think that's one of the reasons why perhaps the most salient issue in the Toluca a summit was we will strengthen our educational exchanges in order to promote a more mobile labor force and more integrated should start playing a different role uh, but I would just like to finish with really a question the name of the panel has been TPP that sounds great but aren't we all sitting a fantasy will Obama, President Obama have enough strength to actually get it approved through Congress, or the polarization in the United States right now is such that we might be speaking a lot, of, a lot about these things, but the actual political capacity of this system is such as to approve it, and we'll have to stop this discussion and return in five years, as we did in Mexico for 15 years, as uh, Juan Pardinas reminds us of... The agenda of reforms has, had been in Mexico for 15 years, but political conditions had to change before they actually took place. So I don't know how much we are putting the, I wouldn't say the, the oxen, but the donkey in front of the cart, because maybe things aren't moving in the direction that we think they and, might and, be.
3: And let, let me very quickly jump in on Carlos's remark on TPA because I I think for those of us who've been in Washington long enough or who watch Washington closely, the president isn't going to get TPA before the midterms. That in and of itself will push back the original TPP uh, completion date by at least six or seven months into next year. That will also complicate a couple of issues which the U.S. has been trying to nail down, especially on agriculture with... Australia, New Zealand, and uh, Japan, and some IPR issues and environmental issues with most of the other negotiating parties. And the problem is, then you run into the chicken and the egg because a lot of the countries won't put their final bids on the table if they're not not sure that the US will obtain TPA because they're not willing to to, to lay it down on the line if Congress (coughs) then can nitpick the agreement because the president doesn't get TPA. So, so th- this this is a very and paradoxically, um, I, I, I don't know if the, the gods were wishing to punish us all. The you know I think the decision to send Senator Balkas to uh, uh, to China as the new uh, U.S. ambassador at the same time deprives the it gives the U.S. a new ambassador, but it deprived the president of the senator who put the bill for TPA on the table. So you've you've gained an ambassador but you've lost your TPA uh, quarterback in the Senate. So, so th- this, this whole issue of TPA and how this is going to play out politically will have a very important direct bearing on TPP. So that issue of fast-tracked authority, the ability of uh, the uh, the U.S.
2: president to uh, present trade agreements to Congress for an up-or-down vote has been essential for the passage of trade agreements in the past and and has never been something that Congress is totally happy about. They've always just kind of narrowly given it to the president, taken it away, occasionally given it back. Um, Susan, how do we think about the prospects for the U.S. being a reliable partner with, with whom one can negotiate trade agreements in the next number of years?
0: Well, I, I, without making some characterological statements about the U.S. as a reliable partner, I think Trade Promotion Authority and TPP are going to be uh, very challenging to achieve in Washington. You know, we can hope that after the midterm, you don't know what the constellation will be. And... um, You and I were talking about this the other day, and I was expressing pessimism, and you yourself said, well, you know, who knows what happens after the midterm. So, um, you know, I think that's the best hope, because, of course, you're right. Why should governments in these other countries uh, roll their own interest groups in their countries, pay the political price before they know that this is really something that's going to happen. So um, it could be a very protracted effort. And, of course, what I worry about is if we're not able to move forward, will it then contribute to this widespread perception of the U.S. as a declining power that doesn't have the ability to lead? So, um, and, of course...
2: That's very damaging. So as we, um, as we think about the, the next phase of the North American economic relationship, um, manufacturing will certainly be a part of it, despite the troubles that the United States is having. Uh, but for, for both Mexico and the US, U.S.'s sake, um, you would hope that services would be an increasingly important part of that economic relationship. Services is an area where the U.S. runs a very strong trade surplus – um, and uh, and where we've seen less of the creation of global produ- production networks. Now, that has to do with some of the technological uh, features of the way in which services are generated, be that, be that in finance or accounting or business services or software and, or so forth. But, um, Carlos, as we, we look down the line and we, we think about how the North American economy is going to develop um, do we want to be thinking of that still strictly in manufacturing terms? Are there real possibilities for services? Are there things that Mexico can be doing concretely to diversify um, its, uh, its production base as it conf- uh, confronts uh, the global economy?
4: I really don't know. That's a very short answer, but uh, my intuition would be that A, some of the services... If we are capable of solving particularly a security issue such as health, there we should have an, a, an important advantage because for obvious reasons certain, certain procedures are now relatively easy to do and we have certain standards and the price in Mexico would be much more cheaper. And there are some facilities that have been built not only in the border but in Monterrey and other cities where you could profit from that and i think that's an important uh, possibility i think that we have t- also to bear in mind that because of the demographic transition and uh, growth of pensioners in in mexico in, in in the us we'll probably be seeing much more mexicans uh, U- us citizens and canadians living in mexico in puerto vallarta san miguel etc and that in itself is going to create another dynamics which is usually not Considered as important, but already you know that. How many US citizens live in Mexico right now? Sort of. we Juan they, Gallardo, but help us. <laughs> 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 there,
3: there, there, is, there isn't a very scientific figure, but the calculus is that on a year basis, whether they're full time or spend sort of six months of the year in Mexico, we've got about 1.2 million Americans in Mexico. Which which is the
4: highest figure ever in spite of the security crisis. So there I think you also have an avenue for integrating the economy. And probably the most complex challenge Mexico and the world in general has is these new technologies which will be destroying labor in the short run and will be creating a divided society even worse than in the past? How does a country that, that starts with such strong inequalities, which hasn't have, uh, doesn't have the uh, human capital uh, as sophisticated as needed to confront these challenges, can grab a slice of this new world? And I think that will depend on the capacity of this administration that has decided to devote In much larger slice of its budget to to technology and science ever in the history of Mexico. They plan to move from our very pathetic 0.5 of GDP to one point of GDP. And they've been moving, they've already started moving. So the budget that has been allocated to science has been growing significantly in the last year and should continue moving in that direction. And that, as we all know, it's a very uncertain investment. We don't know we'll be capable of capturing some of these slices, but certainly, for a relationship that is so based on manufacturing, uh, in terms of economic terms, in economic terms, that does pose a challenge. But I think that most of the, that some of the most heavy and complex manufacturing capacities, should provide enough steam for the, at least the middle run.
2: Leaves us time for uh, one very brief question. If there's still another.
0: Just a very fast comment going back to the uh, gastronomia. Uh, Mezcal is a much better combination with mole. (laughs) 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 Uh, um,
2: On that note, (laughs) uh, uh, please join me in in thanking our panelists. This has been uh, a great discussion.